This is the London Live Podcast. Listen live weekdays from 1 to 3 on 980 CFPL. We're going to talk ethics. Not ethics of dividing a province into a number of regions, because we've proven there are ethical questions about that already, too. But ethics of using humans to test out things that might one day be able to treat this virus might one day be able to uncover a vaccine for this virus. It is one thing to make use of other kinds of tests. It's, it's something a little different to use human beings to do this. So joining us right now is someone who can shed a whole lot of light on COVID-19 and the ethics of some of what is going on. Please welcome to London Live, Dr. Charles Vayer, who is a professor at Western Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and Faculty of Arts and Humanities, as we talk about the ethics of COVID-19 human challenge studies. Dr. Vayer, thank you so much for your time. Well, thanks, Mike. Uh, it's a real pleasure to be on your show today. Well, it is fantastic to have you here. And I think the first thing we've got to start with is human challenge studies, because it sounds like what many people would call an industry word for an industry term for their own industries. When you're talking about human challenge studies, what are those? Right. I mean, not a lot of people have heard of human challenge studies. Uh, they're, they're pretty uncommon. Um, I think the clearest way to explain it is to tell you a short story about a place called the Common Cold Research Unit um, in England. It was set up in 1946 um, to study the common cold. How is it transmitted? Are there drugs that can treat it? Can we develop a vaccine against it? And so they actually used to advertise in local newspapers and say, hey, would you like a, a free vacation in the English countryside? We'll pay for your accommodation. Uh, we'll give you a little bit of money. We'll feed you. The only downside is we're going to give you, we're going to infect you with with a common cold. And so they used to house people in units of, of, of two or three. And, uh, for instance, to study the transmission of the common cold, they might infect one of those people and see how long it took for the other two people to become infected. Or they might um, try and see whether a drug worked. And so they might infect um, everyone within a unit within a common cold and just give some of them the drug. And if they got better faster, then we had evidence that that drug was effective. And finally, they used it to test vaccines against, against the common cold. And here they would vaccinate, say, half of the people and then try and infect everyone with the cold. And if less people who'd been vaccinated got a common cold, then we had good evidence that that vaccine was, was effective. It turns out, um, years later, that about 10% of common colds are caused by coronavirus. So the same family of virus that's, that's currently causing uh, the novel coronavirus um, pandemic. Now, that's a fascinating story to look at it, how that all unfolded. So now let's kind of zero in on the ethics of all of this. And 
This is something that, you know, we could easily say, hey, you know what, let's, it doesn't matter, we think we've got something here, uh, run over to an elementary school and grab me five or six of those elementary students, bring them here and, and we'll try this out. As humans, we could do something like that, but we stay completely away from that. So how do we carry out research that the world needs with, I guess, yeah. the ethical guidelines that we need to adhere to? Well, I think it's a it's an enormously challenging uh, uh, problem. I've been working uh, as a bioethicist and specifically on problems in research ethics for 24 years now, and uh, I have to say this is, this is the most difficult question um, I've ever faced. You know, can we... Um, you know, there, there are potentially plain scientific benefits from doing challenge studies uh, to develop a COVID-19 vaccine, but can we do this um, ethically? Um, the story goes back to March of this year when uh, an ethicist, uh, his name is Nir Ayal, at, at uh, Rutgers University, along with a vaccine scientist at, at Harvard and a vaccine scientist at Oxford, they published a paper in the Journal of Infectious Disease, and they said, look, Routine vaccine development for COVID-19 would take years. We can't wait that long. Uh, too many people are going to die. We can save lives if we can develop a vaccine earlier. And so they suggested, they were the first ones to suggest actually using uh, human challenge studies as a way of, um, uh, you know, basically accelerating the vaccine um, development um, process. So it's an idea that, that I think has got a lot of people interested right now. WHO um, has been pulling together a large group of scientists to talk about this. And I was involved uh, in a working group uh, pulled together by WHO um, at, the, at, the end of, um, at the end of March to, to look at um, ethical issues in these studies. Could, um, notwithstanding the benefits potentially to saving lives, could these studies be be conducted um, ethically? And I have to say, our working group was 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 pretty divided, pretty divided on the question. Uh, we came up with um, ethical guidance that was issued uh, on May sixth of this year, and in it we set out sort of eight key criteria that a study would need to fulfill um, in order to be ethically acceptable. We are talking right now about. Ethics and challenge studies with regard to COVID-19 and some of the research that is being done with Dr. Charles Vayer, who's a professor at Western Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and Faculty of Arts and Humanities, but also, as Dr. Vayer just pointed out, was part of a working group for guidance on human challenge studies and how to carry these out. Dr. Vayer, maybe we could look at the idea that in past times and and certainly in present times if someone has a disease if someone has a disorder every once in a while they'll get an offer to hey what why don't we try this does this particular research that would be going on trying to find a treatment trying to find a vaccine is there ever any way that it can fit inside those parameters ethically i think what's different about about challenge studies uh, so unlike unlike uh, normal clinical trials that we think of where someone already has an illness and we're interested in, in uh, testing whether a treatment is effective for their illness, 
in, in that case, you know, someone's actually already got the disease and, and they may personally benefit uh, from, from the treatment that's being evaluated into trial. Human challenge studies are different because they involve um, intentionally infecting um, healthy volunteers with a disease. And so there are uh, much stricter limits on how we do this. I was involved in a, in a set of guidelines uh, for challenge studies uh, that was published in 2015, so obviously before the whole uh, COVID-19 pandemic. And uh, we drew a clear line in the sand in those recommendations and said, look, uh, you can do challenge studies with self-limited diseases, for instance, common colds or perhaps influenza, but if the disease is not um, uh, not sort of inherently self-limiting or if it's potentially fatal, there needs to be curative treatment. The, ch- the, the difficulty with COVID-19, of course, is that um, it's um, unfortunately in some cases it leads to very serious disease indeed, and a small proportion of individuals infected with it um, um, die. And there isn't currently no curative treatment. So the question is, is can we do these challenge studies at all? And do you think we'll come up with an answer, or are we going to have a discussion about this, and then different labs will say, well, you know, they're, they're still talking about it, so here, quickly, come on, come on over here, let's get this done. Yeah, so I mean, I think I think we want a common set of standards internationally, and that's that's what our our group, uh, our working group at WHO, tried to tried to provide. We set out um, uh, a, a set of eight criteria. I can just highlight a, a couple of them uh, that any study would have to fulfill uh, in order uh, to be ethically acceptable. You know, first off, there'd need to be a clear case for social value. So researchers would have to explain and provide evidence for why it is this particular challenge study would speed the development of a COVID-19 vaccine. Secondly, we would um, the study could only include persons at the lowest risk, so just healthy individuals, so no pre-existing conditions between uh, 18 and 29 uh, years of age. And uh, those individuals should be taken from uh, communities, regions, or countries where COVID-19 is circulating. So, in other words, there's a chance that even if they didn't participate in the study, uh, they they could have become infected with COVID-19 anyway. And um, the final criterion I'll just um, highlight here is we really felt there needed to be very high levels for informed consent, an extensive disclosure process, and maybe even testing people's understanding of, of the information. But... You know, I I, I, I think um, I have to say, you know, I I find these studies uh, very difficult, um, simply because on the one hand you've got the potential of saving um, tens of thousands or even hundreds of thousands of lives uh, by virtue of developing a vaccine earlier, but at the same time, even if we focus just on young, healthy adults, there's still going to be a risk of death, uh, something on the order of three in ten thousand. And as a research ethicist who's, who's dedicated his career to protecting the welfare of, of research participants, even a risk that small makes me very uncomfortable. Hmm. So where does this sit in terms of you know, the World Health Organization creating this working group that you were being a part of and now looking at, all right, well, we do have labs that are, are either ready to do studies or are preparing to do studies. So how does all of that intertwine right now so that we can get moving forward? 
I think the key is international coordination. Uh, something we saw with, with treatment trials for COVID-19, um, you know, literally hundreds of small trials popping up all over the world, and, and things just weren't being done in a coordinated way. WHO there stepped in in a very useful way in, in what they called their solidarity trial to create a large, single, central um, uh, randomized control trial for treatment. Here, WHO, I think, is trying to serve the same role, uh, to bring scientists together to talk about um, a plan for doing uh, these studies in a coordinated international way and using the ethical recommendations uh, from the working group that I was part of um, to um, help make sure that not only are these studies done to the highest scientific standards, but they're done to the highest ethical standards as well. Well, thank you for the role that you and your colleagues are playing in this, Dr. Veyer, because it is an incredibly important one. As much as we want to say, come on, let's get this done, hurry up, we need this We need this now, we need this yesterday, you still have to make sure that people are following the rules. I think if we're, we're hearing one thing over and over again, it's the following of the rules. Dr. Veyer, thank you again, and please be safe. Absolutely, uh, my pleasure. Thank you, Mike. That is Dr. Charles Veyer, professor at Western Schulich School of Medicine and Dentistry and part of a working group for guidance on human challenge studies for the World Health Organization. You know, it's one thing to say, yeah, no problem. We got to get this done. So whatever, whatever you need. But you don't necessarily want to throw out there the whatever you need. You know, when you say that to somebody that you don't really know and you don't really expect them, hey, you know, I, I see you're moving refrigerators on Saturday. Yeah, yeah, just wh- whatever you need, you know, you, you need my help? Uh, yeah, d- no problem. And then they say, okay, uh, you're picking up nine refrigerators and you're delivering them to these addresses. You got to make sure that things are well, let's say understood. And as Dr. Veyer points out, on an international level, can we coordinate things internationally? Not very well. No, we don't have a good track record. Here's hoping that if we need a set of guidelines, they've created one, that we don't run into those issues as we try to create treatments and, who knows, Eureka and, what a glorious day, a vaccine to treat COVID-19. Overall, it is fascinating to look at Ontario Premier Doug Ford in the pre-COVID-19 pandemic situations and the present COVID-19 pandemic situations, because there were a lot of concerns over the Premier and some of his actions and some of the ways that he was dealing with things. Even his own party seemed to question that. Remember the federal election campaign? What did they do? They flew in Alberta Premier Jason Kenney to kind of help out, even though Ontario Premier Doug Ford was there. If there was a federal election campaign going on right now, you think somebody's buying a plane ticket for Jason Kenney to have him wander around with Andrew Scheer? No, that's not happening. Ontario Premier Doug Ford would be doing that. We have seen a performance that comes with what what would you say reassurance we'd say we've seen leadership you know all you have to do is look south of the border there's somebody campaigning instead of leading every single day there isn't even a hint of that with ontario premier doug ford you've got somebody who's trying to do the right thing and that seems to be shining through and there are numbers 
that seem to back that up. Joining us right now is someone who deals an awful lot with numbers. David Coletto is the CEO of Abacus Data. He's also a professor at Carleton University. David, thanks so much for taking some time for us today. My pleasure, Mike. Thanks for having me. Well, let's kind of dig into how Ontarians are feeling about Doug Ford. Let us know what you've gone looking for and what you've found. Well, every so often we, we do a check-in to see, you know, how Ontarians are feeling about the provincial government, about the premier, about other political leaders. And what we found is in a very short period of time, as you alluded to in your opening, um, the views of, of most people in the province have completely shifted. So let me just give you context. Back in early March, so before the worst of the pandemic really took hold here in Canada and Ontario, we had uh, 23% of uh, Ontarians in a survey we did in early March saying they had a positive impression of the Premier, 61% negative. And as of this weekend, when we finished this, this recent survey, more or less a flip. So we've got 46% saying positive and 25% negative. So that's the big picture when it comes to the Premier. But we're seeing the same kind of bounce, even, even more so for the government as a whole. When we ask people overall, how would you rate the performance of the provincial government? Do you approve or disapprove? 60% of Ontarians approve of the job of the provincial government overall. Only 16% disapprove. And so the big picture really is that the premier's personal image, the, the, the approval rating of the government overall, is basically in a completely different position today than it was just under three months ago. Interesting. Now, when we're talking about 60%, let's give that a little context, because everybody would love to shoot for 100%, but when we're talking about a province that has Ontario Premier Doug Ford, has Andrea Horvath, longtime leader of the NDP, has Stephen Del Duca, relatively new leader of the Liberals, and Mike Schreiner of the Green Party, when you're dealing with four, how big a number is 60%? That's big. It's rare to see... um anywhere really uh, at any at any moment so this is a, an unprecedented moment for a number of reasons but to get 60 percent approval um when if you just considered less than 40 percent of Ontarians actually voted for doug ford in 2018 we rarely see it at any level of government any government of any political stripe getting over 40 45 percent of, of approval so this is a, a a kind of a new 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 territory for the, the provincial government. We saw last week we released some numbers on the federal government found, found similar things. But when you dig a little deeper, you start to see why, why the government's overall approval rating is so high. When we ask specifically about how it's handled or how it's responded to the pandemic so far, 74% of Ontarians approve, 8% disapprove. When we ask about how well has it connected with people or being open and accessible. Again, clear majorities of Ontarians liking what they're seeing from the provincial government. In fact, when we get even further and we look at things like education, healthcare, the budget, um, you know, making life more affordable, generally speaking, more people say positive things than negative. And, and that's an indication that the, the, the positive response people have had to the premier and the government when it comes to the crisis and the pandemic has carried over into other areas. But the big but is, and I think this is true of all governments today in Canada, most of the evaluations people are making, um, the biggest driver to whether somebody approves or disapproves of the premier and the government is through the lens of the pandemic. And so you know, it's almost like 
we've put aside everything that we may have disliked about what the premier and the government had done before, the way that it it approached certain policy files, even things you recall just before the pandemic broke and, and in the midst of the early days, you know, the teacher strikes and the way that it was sort of going back and forth with the teachers union at the time wasn't well liked and people really sided with the teachers. Um, they basically put that all aside and they said, we are, are behind you to get through this and we like what you've done so far. Interesting. We're talking with David Coletto, who is the CEO of Abacus Data and a professor at Carleton University. And we're looking at what Abacus Data has pulled together on how we're all feeling in this province about Doug Ford and the flip of essentially 40% giving him the thumbs up before the pandemic began. And now we're at a 60% approval rating, essentially. One of the other things that looked really interesting and probably would be really interesting for the other three party leaders in Ontario is how well known they are, that people were asked whether they didn't feel they knew enough about these leaders. They seem to know a lot about Doug Ford, but what would you say about the other leaders in that way? Well, for Stephen Del Duca, the the new liberal leader, um, I don't think it's surprising that almost you know, just over 40% say they don't know him well enough to judge whether they have a positive or negative impression of them. Um, and so I think, you know, you need to give him time to introduce himself. It's a difficult period to be a brand new opposition leader, given that so much attention being paid to this one issue and really the platform that it gives government and the premier and ministers to communicate. Uh, Mike Schreiner, the, the Green Party leader, still also relatively unknown um, you know, having one seat in the legislature, making that breakthrough in the last election was a big deal for the Greens, but he hasn't gotten much traction. But I, when I look at Andrea Horvath, the NDP leader's numbers, I look at this and say, you've been leader of the New Democrats for almost or just over 11 years now. Um, you really impressed a lot of people during the last campaign. You, you formed the official opposition. And while more people have a positive view of Ms. Horvath than negative, and that's been that way for, since I've been doing uh, Ontario politics tracking. But still, one out of five Ontarians say, I don't know enough about her to, to really make up my mind about how I feel. And another 25% or a quarter say they have a neutral impression. So Andrea Horvath, I think, you know, has always struggled, I think, to break through, to, to get people's attention. And, and unfortunately, I think for her, you know, that's, that's the case today. So, you know, not bad numbers for Ms. Horvath, but still... You know, if you've been leader for this long, you're the leader of the opposition. Um, you know, Mr. Scheer at the federal level doesn't, doesn't you know, uh, he's, he's viewed very negatively nationally, but it's very few people um, don't have an opinion of him. And so she still has a lot of work to do as we still a ways away from the next election. But, you know, it's, it's always hard to get attention during a crisis when you're the opposition leader. And I think uh, this one's no exception. Always great to get caught up on things like this. David, thank you so much for the work that you do, and thanks for presenting it to us. My pleasure. Thanks, Mike. That's David Coletto. He is the CEO of Abacus Data and a professor at Carleton University. So a flip for how people feel about Premier Doug Ford. Remember, 60% is tough to get when you essentially have a three-slash-four-party system. We have a four-party system. The Greens are still looking to make more gains, obviously, but... When you look at how things break down, yeah, the NDP having 22% say they didn't feel they knew enough 
about Andrea Horvath. That surprises me. It really does, because I think Andrea Horvath has done a very good job of being front and center, especially during campaigns or especially during times when there are things to talk about. That that one really surprised me. Stephen Del Duca, well, the jury's still out on him. It didn't start very well with movement of his pool, but... We'll see what happens. Okay, let's take a break. I will tell that story that goes back to 2016 next. We are going to get a local update on how things are going from the City of London and the Middlesex London Health Unit. That is about 14 minutes away. And a little later on, we yesterday had four men, amazing athletes, all of them, two very good golfers, two just good athletes, and they all ended up proving it. Tom Brady, Peyton Manning. Phil Mickelson and Tiger Woods, they all played a match challenge that raised $20 million. These guys could have shown up and sat on a bench, and they would have raised $20 million. They just have that ability. But we're going to look at another sport that has been able to work through the pandemic and continue. And that sport is cycling. There are things that fit the parameters of the COVID-19 pandemic. We seem to outline one or two of those a day. Things that just end up working. Sitting alone or with family members and listening to the radio, that fits. Going for a walk, even as Dr. Chris Mackey pointed out just a few minutes ago, and not using trails so that you kind of stay away from where people are, that fits. Yeah, that fits. Uh, How about cycling races? Mm, Well, no. no, you, You would have to have a number of people together, and you would have to have a race so no we're not having any running races right now we're not having any walking events no there's there's no way you could make that work well please welcome to london live a couple of people who are going to prove to us you can the ontario race director with the ontario cycling association andrew paradowski and the high performance coordinator and special projects coach chantal thompson join us chantal andrew how was your weekend Oh, yeah, not too bad. Too bad. Uh, we had uh, a fun little time on uh, Saturday with uh, over uh, 450 racers coming out and participating in uh, our virtual race series. Okay, Andrew, you, you just kind of hit on something. Over 400 people coming out, taking part in a cycling race. Now, I think we did hear you say the word virtual, but can you outline what was happening this past weekend and how it worked? Uh, for sure. So uh, on the uh, race platform called Zwift, which is an online uh, program that allows riders who normally ride indoors on their trainers, uh, which are you know, little devices that you would attach your regular outdoor bike to, uh, and they would uh, do some training with some resistance uh, and to make it more interesting. Uh, there have been several programs developed over the years to, to help you do that. And one of them is, is uh, Zwift, which allows you to ride around in these virtual sort of fake worlds, and then they even have the ability to set up races where people can compete against each other over a certain distance. Uh, so that's what we were doing, and uh, we were doing that in an effort to get people uh, on their bikes and back to the cycling community because that's people uh, can't be racing together outdoors. So. Chantel, is this something that has ever gone on at any other time? Because this program, this uh, this kind of online ability to ride a bike was always there, but were you ever using it in a way like this? 
Uh, it's interesting because, uh, I mean, overall, no, the, the platforms existed for many years. It's been used as a training device for people during the winter months. Uh, races, it, it was actually originally designed just as a training platform, more so for triathletes, uh, training on your own, but it is soon developed to group rides and races. But this series here, we developed uh, within a f- few weeks of the lockdown. Uh, there was a need for it. Uh, all of our membership was asking, you know, what can we do? We want to race together. We want to be together. And of course, we don't want to go against any of the rules of the government. We want to be able to provide that experience to ride with others. And so after researching some of the platforms, we felt that Zwift was the best one. And we began this race series weekly. That's fantastic. We're talking right now with Chantel Thompson, who is the High Performance Coordinator and Special Projects Coach with the Ontario Cycling Association, and Andrew Paradowski, who is the Race Director with the OCA. And have you always had, Andrew, 400-plus competitors? Or are you seeing the number grow? Uh, do you mean uh, indoors or uh, outdoors? Well, just what you let's, let's call it this past weekend and the kind of event you did this past weekend. So uh, the numbers have grown a little bit uh, in different ways. Uh, one of the, the limitations of the software is that uh, we can't uh, close off the race to just Ontario riders. So there are riders from around the world who are also participating in our race. Uh, so that uh, that full number of 450 uh, wasn't all riders from Ontario, uh, but we certainly had uh, a large chunk of it. Uh, the numbers did drop a little bit from the uh, previous week because it was a bit nicer outdoors uh, on Saturday. So I think some people wanted to take advantage of that. Uh, but it is certainly catching on and, and signing up to take part. But how great is that, Chantel? Now you're able to compete against people around the world. So as far as, as how the timing works on this, because we could all say, all right, uh, we're going to have a 100-meter race, and you just submit your time, and you tell us how quickly you ran, and from people not really mapping out 100 meters properly to forgetting to start the stopwatch on time, we could have people running seven-second 100 meters. So how does this work in terms of doing the race and then submitting the time it's neat because the online platform has a designated race start time uh, and it's not uh, a self-reported race it is a virtual race where everybody involved is actively racing and the program extrapolates the numbers racers need uh, a device on their bike so there's two ways of hooking up and having your numbers count towards the race essentially uh, making the program work and uh, one way is using a speed uh, and cadence. Uh, it's like a measuring device that measures your revolution. Uh, the cadence device is put on your rear wheel, and it measures revolution and therefore calculates your speed. And cadence is important. That's leg speed uh, to also prove your riding. And you just haven't hooked up your uh, your speed meter to a car. <laughs> um, that's, that's the easiest way to hook up. It's fairly inexpensive. For under $100, you can connect yourself to the Zwift program. Uh, as we get a little bit more advanced and we want to become even more honest with our numbers, it's uh, the use of power meters. Power meters can be formed in the crank of the bike, the hub of the bike, or even in smart trainers. Power meters are where we get a little bit more expensive because they don't start uh, until you hit about the $500 mark. So sometimes that's a bit more pricey, but the more advanced the riders are, most of them already own this equipment. So our higher higher performing groups, such as the A and B groups, um, everybody has a power meter anyway, so it keeps them honest. 
That's great. We're talking with Chantal Thompson, who is the high-performance coordinator and special projects coach with the Ontario Cycling Association, and Andrew Paradowski, who is the race director of the Ontario Cycling Association. Let's uh, all look ahead to a day when as great as all of this has been and competing against people around the world is certainly a unique experience, but let's look to a day when you get back to actually doing some outdoor racing. Andrew, if somebody was interested in becoming a racer is is there an age that is a good age to start or can this be open to anybody no uh you can be any age to start there really is no restriction on that uh i think if you wanted to go to the olympics starting a bit younger is always key but uh just to get involved uh in in the sport uh there are people who are routinely starting uh in in their 60s and 70s uh coming out and uh whether it's just joining a club for rides or even uh going a little bit further and uh and racing um, hopefully once uh, the pandemic clears and we'll have outdoor racing available again, we invite everyone to come out and try it. Uh, you contact uh, the Ontario Cycling Association, find out where your local club is, and, and you can get connected with them. Um, and uh, if even that uh, outdoor ride your racing doesn't uh, appeal to you at, at this moment, I think one of the things, the takeaways from this, this pandemic is that the indoor racing thing might actually stay. Uh, you know, in a country like ours where we only have uh, four to six good months of weather, uh, the other six, you're going to be sort of stuck indoors and you can't really ride outside. Uh, this might become a regular thing in the future uh, where we, we race indoors on, on a virtual circuit uh, in the winter months. That is great. And Chantel, it sounds like, well, we have the technology now and the technology usually doesn't get worse, does it? Absolutely true. And it's interesting because this push towards the virtual racing would not have happened uh, without this lockdown. And it's very interesting to seeing how the culture of cycling is changing just over the last two to three months. That is great stuff. Well, Chantal, Andrew, thank you so much for describing this for us. Thanks for keeping a whole lot of people active through this pandemic and finding a way to make this fit the parameters of what we're being asked to do. All the best. Stay safe. Thank you. You too. Thanks for having us. Great to have you here. That is Chantel Thompson and Andrew Paradowski from the Ontario Cycling Association. You've been listening to the London Live podcast. Catch the show live on weekdays from 1 to 3.